Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is Malcolm Bruce. Malcolm is an absolute icon in music. He has played with everyone, everyone, Malcolm. It's just unbelievable, and we're going to talk about a lot of it. He is the founder of Heavenly Cream, which is a tribute to his father, the late legendary Jack Bruce of Cream. Uh, one of the iconic rock trios, really in many ways, probably the most iconic Malcolm with uh, Eric Clapton and Ginger Baker. Um, I did see the band a couple years ago, more than a couple, I guess, Malcolm. They had a brief reunion and I saw them at Madison Square Garden in New York. Oh, I was there on the final night of that. So yes, we we probably rubbed shoulders somewhere along the way. Yeah, oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, was that two thousand five? I think. Yeah, I guess it was more than a few five. years ago. Yeah, Time. a few, couple of years ago. Yeah, two thousand and five. It's like twenty years ago. Oh it's my crazy. god! Well, I am flying. It does indeed. Yeah. And so uh, there were so many places to start with you, Malcolm. But one of the names that popped out at me, uh, who you've played with, and I know we just talked about Steve Cropper before we started uh, on the air, but Little Richard's name jumped out. So I'd love to start by talking about someone who was probably the most influential in many ways, most misunderstood. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, he was very uh, uh, open about how he thought he didn't get the respect he necessarily deserved and how so much of the way rock and roll evolved really goes back to little Richard. So I'd love to talk about him. Absolutely. Well, I think, I think he's right. I mean, and that's, you know, hopefully that's being addressed in our current times, you know, but yeah, I guess you could say that Elvis, cause he had white skin um, and was born into a particular thing would have taken that kind of uh, the inventions of those guys, the black people of that time, and sort of made a lot of money out of it. Whereas, I mean, you know, having said that, Richard was hugely successful as well. So I think it's complicated, isn't it, all of that stuff? But um, but I think, um, yes, it's a race issue, isn't it? You know, it, it's always cultural and ra- racial, all of these things. Hopefully we'll get to a point where, I always like that Martin Luther King quote uh, where you said, I don't want my children to be judged on the color of their skin, but on the qualities of their character. And, you know, so hopefully we'll get to a point where all of that's kind of superficial to who we are and what we're contributing in the world. Um, But yes, I got to spend a couple of days with Richard Penniman in Nashville. uh, Well, actually in Franklin, Tennessee, you know, just south of Nashville, um, I was making a record and staying with my friends, the McKendries, a guy called Kevin McKendry, who uh, was at that time MD for Delbert McClinton. And uh, so I kind of got, I was lucky, you know, most people that go to Nashville, they have to wait tables and kind of uh, spend 10 years kind of making inroads into meeting people. But I just kind of lucked out because my friend Mark Allison introduced me to Kevin. And so I was sort of in the belly of this kind of blues Americana part of Nashville, not really the country scene side of it, but Kevin has worked with everybody, incredible musician, producer. Um, And so he got a call um, from a guy called Kelvin Holly, who is, who was um, an amazing guitar player and was, uh, Richard's MD and this was really about 
um, it was a record for a, a singer, a songwriter in Nashville called Dottie Rambo, and she died in a in a tour bus crash. Apparently, the driver was um, had narcolepsy and fell asleep at the wheel. <laughs> I don't know what the story went, but anyway, she was a legendary songwriter in Nashville, and everybody had worked with her. Um, over the years so I think there were people like Solomon Burke uh, contributing um, and Richard came in for two days and we recorded this song and I got to kind of assist and assist with engineering I got I got to go press you know press the uh, intercom and uh, say hey Richard that was great just do one more for me you know that kind of stuff so uh, but anyway I mean it was just you know we had the muscle shoals horns come in and it was just a wonderful couple of days and um richard was hum super humble he'd had i don't know all the details but he'd had some kind of car crash i think so he was in a wheelchair he wasn't really able to walk um but he sang beautifully and he was just humble he was just he treated everybody with really nicely there was no ego um and we talked a little very briefly we talked a little bit about london um and um, and then as at the end of the second session on the second day, his sort of seven foot tall minder that had always been in the back, kind of slightly menacing, he said, hey, Malcolm, Malcolm, hey, I love the girls in London. And he was like, we had this chat about like his experiences in London. So like everybody was just wonderful and lovely. And it was just, yeah, it's one of those experiences that stays with you uh, being with somebody like that, that kind of, as you said, you know, invented was one of the people that kind of invented popular music really um so uh and uh yeah so great memories of a great man you know fantastic so let's stay where we are for for a minute or two and uh you touched on you know skin color and yeah and one of the uh, uh most memorable guests that we've had on great minds was marshall chess who was the son of leonard chess and as you know, Chess Records, seminal yes. role in music in American blues, Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, so many others. Yeah. And uh, Marshall told the story of how his father drove the record uh, of Maybelline across the country to Alan Freed in New York. And that became the first crossover hit. You know, before then, and you'll know all this, black music was considered race music and white own commercial radio would never play a and there'd be artist. this kind of right there'd be this thing and and i suppose i mean again i'm naive to all the details but i would i guess you'd have clubs that were black clubs and clubs that were white clubs but the black bands were allowed to perform at the white clubs but they weren't allowed to mix with the white clientele and all of that stuff crazy Cor anyways correct exactly <laughs> correct and yet so much of the great rise of british rock including cream owes its roots to American black blues artists. And I was talking about this with somebody yesterday that in so many ways, you know, the Brits appreciated a lot of our icons much more so, I think, in many ways than we did. And in a jazz world, Miles Davis, you know, went to Paris and France literally to escape the racism that he experienced in America and, and part of his history and part of his drug drug use, as you know, he was a lifelong lifelong addict, was because of how poorly he was treated, you know, in America as a black man. 
Talk about that juxtaposition of American blues and influence on the evolution of British rock, including Cream and then in turn, of course, Heavenly Cream. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, we have one of the legends of the blues world on this record, Bobby Rush, who, you know, again, I mean, and, you know, that again, just to note that Bobby flew in, came straight to Abbey Road and recorded and was so gracious and accommodating and kind to everyone. And there wasn't a hint of ego and all of that stuff. And, and the whole race thing wasn't there either, because I suppose he has experienced all of that. I'm sure he's as a black American, as an African-American, as you guys call them, um, he must have experienced that throughout his life and he must have learned how to deal with that and to, how to transcend it and also how to how to affect it by his attitude. You know, um, it's that kind of reactive. If you react, then you're going to get a reaction. It's karma. You know, you're going to, if you kind of go, well, you know, what? Well, don't treat me badly, then the racist type people are going to treat you badly. You know, so you have to somehow, all forms of prejudice, you know, whether it's anti-Semitism or whatever it is, you know, um, we all have to kind of somehow find strategies to neutralize it all. Uh, but yeah, going back, I think, and I think still now in a in our contemporary world, racism is has slightly different flavors, has slightly different attributes, and I think it's always seemed different in 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 the states to the UK. I think maybe there's more integration in the UK. I don't know whether racism is the same over here. Um, it seems like maybe there was a kind of tradition of segregation that continued longer in America in terms of culture. I'm not sure. I'm not an expert, and I haven't really spent a lot of time thinking about it. I just experienced what I've experienced. Um, I mean, having said that, we have this whole wind rush thing going on here, and um, you know, we did that. We kind of put adverts in wind shop windows in Jamaica in and in the fifties, and you know, and said, "Hey, come over. You're part of the, you're part of, you know, the Commonwealth. You know, yeah. we'll you'll get have great lives." And then, so all these black people, J Jamaicans especially, came over with this hope in their hearts that they were going to live in in this, you know, economic, uh, wonderful economic climate and and have great jobs. And they were just pushed into slums and treated like second you know treated like they didn't even exist you know not even second class citizens but literally like they were scum you know and um so we have our long history that of course goes back hundreds of years to, to a kind of uh imperialistic colonial uh perspective actually interestingly the um uh Bayesian, the barbe the prime minister of Barbados recently came forward and said uh, that she felt um, after after King King Charles made a speech about reparations and about and about um, colonialism. I think she's come forward and talked about reparations. So and it and it runs into the trillions. So it will be interesting to see what happens with with all of that. You know whether there will be redressing the balance of of historic acts of uh you know um oppression um and and control and um so you know let's see if uh the british commonwealth bung 2.3 trillion pounds uh 50 to uh 
to Barbados. I'm not sure if that, but maybe there'll be all these kinds of deals. Like, let's just rebalance everything. Let's accept our acts of our terrorist acts from previous part times, and let's kind of. I mean, I've got a list of my grievances too, but you know, that's, yeah, it's yeah. based on being a black a person of color. You know, so there are other kinds of grievances, but. But yes, in terms of music, I mean, where do you even start? You know, like music is a universal force. It doesn't belong to the color of someone's skin or the culture or, you know, and Ginger Baker himself was really, really important in that story in terms of, um, you know, studying African music, even going to Africa and working with Fela Kuti, for instance, you know, that was unprecedented at the time in the early 70s when he did that. And then he um, he built, a, I believe, the first multi-track, multi-track recording studio in in um, it, it, where he was in Africa. And then famously, Paul McCartney and Wings went over there and recorded in that studio um, one of their records. Uh, I think there's even a documentary about it. And, and that was up until there was a coup and then ginger had to escape everyone had to escape or something i don't know i don't know all the details but but ginger was important in that in that sense of you know um these cultural divides it's a it's a sensitive and delicate thing isn't it because <clears throat> you know racism you could define racism as actually something that's intrinsic to humanity in the sense not racism but if you're a tribe living on an island and you'd never met the tribe from the other island, if you let them on the island, they might bring a virus that wipes you out because you have no immunity to it. And so from a biological perspective, we kept ourselves separate from each other. And it took, it takes time to integrate everything together so that even on that basic biological level, you become, you have enough immunity to withstand all these little creepy crawlies that are going around in your physiology, in your bodies, you know, so that's what people did. They kept themselves separate. Now we live in a much more globalist culture and rightly so. And I think that that integration is beautiful and that integration somehow contains respect for differences, cultural and otherwise, but also the exploration of how those things can come together and influence each other and then create this kind of synthesis moving into the future. Um, and so, yeah, I guess we're just part of that story. Um, and unfortunately, part of that story involves a lot of awful acts and a lot of awful um, behaviors, not just from white people. You know, it has to be said that black people in Africa sold their own brothers and sisters into slavery as well. You know, so it's a very complicated history that I wouldn't begin to uh, pretend that I understand fully, but from my gut feeling, um, I can imagine those guys in the late fifties, early sixties, discovering this music, you know, um, and going, wow, what's this, you know? And, uh, I guess it came from port towns, you know, like Liverpool, London's not really a port town, but, you know, it's not so far from the Thames Estuary. And, you know, um, so and then there's the U.S. Um, military influence. So, you know, records were probably quite rare. There's, of course, there's a famous story of I think it was Brian Jones or or Mick 
Mick Jagger and Keith Richards meeting on the platform of a South London train station and, you know, uh, one of them's got the record under his arm. You know, it's like a US import blues record and, and it's like gold dust, you know. Oh, my goodness, what's that? And then putting the needle on it and listening to it and the, these exotic sounds, you know, the the electric guitar feedback, you know, uh, how's he doing that with his voice, you know, or whatever it is, like, what are all those influences? And I can imagine at that point in history, those things having a certain kind of import that we'd, uh, we just take it for granted now, you know, um, but those things had a magic to them that must've been hugely impactful on people's uh, minds and the way they felt about their creativity in that burgeoning sense. So, you know, Eric Clapton, was a student of the blues absolutely was listening to all those records to to albert king to bb king um etc and so when cream eventually came together they all three of them you know my dad had grown up in scotland so he had a sort of scottish folk music but also had been a trained singer and cellist so he had a kind of classical music background but had discovered jazz um but then through jazz and through what was emerging at the time in the UK, he discovered what, you know, what was called the kind of R&B, R&B boom. Of course, that R&B means something very different now, but R&B at that time meant rhythm and blues. And so all those incredible blues artists. And actually, interestingly enough, I about a few years ago, I spent the evening with Denny Lane, who sadly passed away the other day. And Denny, we were talking, He, my, basically Denny was telling me about this night, this tour that they all did in 1964 that was organized by Robert Stigwood, who was Cream's manager, but it was also my dad's manager in previous bands like the Graham Bond organization. And so he he brought Chuck Berry over in 1964 to do a UK tour and the Moody Blues were on the bill and Graham Bond organization were on the bill and they acted as Chuck's backing band and so, you know, it was this thing, like it was this new music at that time. It was something so new. And um, I mean, Chuck Berry's another one, you know, just, I mean, you can't even explain his influence on popular music. It's so deep. It's so primal to the whole thing. Uh, whether you talk about his kind of genius of the way he would write words or, or you know the humor the everything about it is just innovative in that sense so i mean that's the thing about racism it's it, it's got a lot of supposition in it about you know right and wrong and it it just ignores everything that's yeah. going on you know but, that's the weird thing but what is without argument is the incredible influence of artists going back to the old blues icons like Robert Johnson and Lightning Hopkins and, you know, so many others, uh, uh, you know, the last legend who's still standing from that era is Buddy Guy, who we got to see over the yeah. summer. And he's really the last who goes back to Muddy and Wolf and, and all of them. And the embrace and the influence of all those American blues artists on the evolution of rock and roll worldwide and the great British acts, including of course, cream, that is not debatable. That's fact. Yeah. I mean, I always cite the example of um, Spoonful by Willie Dixon, because to me, that's not blues music. To me, that's 
classical music in the sense that it has kind of two mo motifs. <clears throat> but those motifs, certainly the way my dad approached it, uh, in my experience, was that you're using motivic development. You're, you've got a, you've got here's a here's a short phrase, but that phrase can be inverted. That phrase can be elongated. That phrase can be truncated. It can be transposed. Um, you know, I mean, you don't you're not thinking that while you're doing it because it's in the context of improvised music, and that's the that's the beautiful marriage. Now, you know. We can romanticize it and say that's the marriage of white Western classical tradition and black African music or whatever. You you know, we could sort of romanticize it, but in a sense, that's not important. The point is that within the innate within the human condition in terms of is creativity, and creativity is at its fundamental something in that's unified. It's not it doesn't belong to any particular culture. It might superficially appear to um, manifest in particular concrete ways. But at its fundamental, we're talking about development. We're talking about what is this malleable, like uh, putty, plasticine, I don't know what you guys call it in the States, but, you know, like like you've got this got a Play-Doh or you're making a cake and you're like, which, what shape shall I make that cake? Oh, I'd like... I'd like it to have a little turret here, or I'd like to make it long and I'm going to, I'm going to roll it. No, I'm going to make it into a square, you know, and that's music, you know, whether you're sitting there as Beethoven or as uh, Stravinsky or, or as Malcolm Bruce or whatever, and you're going, okay, I'm going to notate this on a piece of paper and I've got this melody and I'm, but I'm, I, I think it should move in this direction here, but, but you can still kind of recognize it. It's a unified, it's putty. You're, you're pulling it this way and that, and that's what music is, whether we realize it or not. That's the that's the potential of music. And so, so listening to or playing spoonful can be played in that way. It's a wide open, malleable construct. It's not rigid, and it's the same every time. And and that then has an impact on consciousness. You know, this is the thing, like music is so intimately connected with who we are. And, um, and I think the earlier blues artists understood that it, it they understood that intuitively, you know, and so you hear, wait a minute, there were five bars in that turnaround. There weren't four bars in that turnaround. Now the blues is like, da 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 You know, it's like everybody plays it the same way, but it, that wasn't what it was. It was so much more fluid than that, you know, and you hear that in those earlier artists. You hear a five-bar phrase. You don't, it's not always a four-bar phrase. You hear, and and, you know, we were blessed when Bobby Rush came in and he did that with us on Spoonful. And if you listen to how he, and we just went with him because here's a great man in the room that's kind of with his presence directing us. And you hear how he approached the phrases in Spoonful. It's not straight at all. It's moving around. And in that movement creates an impact on consciousness. And that's what music is. It's so connected to who we are and how we feel. It's not an objectification that's some object that we just put in the background. It's something that impacts our physiology. It impacts how we feel, how we think. 
at its best anyway at its worst we get into an elevator and we we want to commit suicide <laughs> right 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 so yeah i mean it's it, yeah you know it's it's just beautiful and i think that that's to me that's what the blues really is it's it's on the le- same level as stravinsky it's on the same level as mozart the same level as shostakovich or whoever you want to cite same level as miles davis miles everybody would have understood that about the blues the real blues not the objectified, you know, record label version of it, but the thing that was coming from within those people as an expression of their creativity. Yeah, no, so well said, Malcolm. So uh, let's dig in a little bit. You're an incredibly accomplished composer, singer, songwriter. You play multiple instruments and you grew up steeped in music. It's not often that we get to talk to somebody who literally grew up with music <laughs> yeah, in a very unique way. Let's talk a little bit, and we'd be remiss not to, to talk about your dad, Jack Bruce, and to talk about, you know, growing up at a time and, you know, surrounded by music icons, the influence of Cream, your dad's band, along with Ginger and Eric Clapton incredibly influential i can't believe that show at madison square garden was 2005 malcolm uh, <laughs> have you googled it no 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 you 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 told, you told me i'm pretty sure it, no i always get confused whether was it 2004 2005 all right but either um, way i thought it was like yeah. five five years ago and it was almost 20. so yeah well don't uh, try not to think about it too much it might get you down <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll take your advice Let's talk about your dad. I want to talk about the concert you put together when he passed in 2016. But talk about remembrances from your younger days, you know, growing up uh, in that incredible, fertile musical atmosphere and, and the characters that you met along the way. But let's talk a little bit about your dad, the legendary Jack Bruce. No, I mean, you know, I love my dad. Uh, I'm still kind of unpacking it. I probably never will. I try not to kind of think about it all too much and just accept it for what it is uh you know my dad was a complicated person but we were music was what kept us all together you know we made music together we would improvise together we talk about music i'd support him and work with him on some of his records uh, as an adult you know as i was getting older and becoming a musician in my own right um but you know, when I was a kid, it was just natural. We, uh, we, uh, my parents split up when I was about nine or ten. Um, but when, but from when I was born to that time, we lived in the obligatory rock star mansion in the English countryside, <laughs> um, in a, a, a county called Suffolk. You guys in the states have Suffolks everywhere, um, but we have one Suffolk. <laughs> Um, just outside of London, like an hour and a half outside of London. Um, and, you know, so we were kind of the big fish in the little village. We were like the rock star in the little village. Uh, we'd ha- we'd host the the village fete every year. It was very sweet. And so it kind of like there was one shop and one church. And um, so the first, the first few years of my life was that kind of very, in a sense, quite a simple uh, British upbringing uh in in a in the countryside um until my parents split up and then i moved back to london which is where my mum 
was was from um so yeah i don't know i mean i just it is what it is uh i guess it would be interesting to ask everybody that's had a um, somewhat of a similar experience of growing up with a famous successful musician as a parent and then becoming a musician yourself <laughs> you know um it, that's very challenging. I always think, what would it have been like if I'd become a bank manager instead of a musician? You know, maybe rebelled. I'm rebelling, Dad. I'm off to the bank. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, and, and I think you used, you know, the right word and say, you know, that that's a life times you know set a baggage to unpack. <laughs> well, yeah, and I've done I've done therapy and I practice meditation um you know i avoid drugs and alcohol i think there's i think you know my dad you know um famously did a lot of drugs and alcohol and all of that kind of stuff and that's you know it's cultural it's of its time everyone was doing that in the music world um certainly in the popular music world there you know in the from the mid 60s on there was a kind of revolution and part of that revolution was the ex exploration of consciousness and um breaking down boundaries and part of that was drug use and and everyone was involved in that and and there were i suppose we can argue there were really good things about that at a certain time where everything was very staid and everyone was thinking very rigidly and then everyone started taking lsd or smoking pot or whatever it was and they kind of opened their minds I don't think that's necessarily the right approach long term, but I think it might have been a necessity at that moment um, to kind of just come in and break apart this kind of rigid system that was oppressing everybody emotionally and spiritually. But, you know, that's a whole other podcast about, you know, uh, consciousness and different states of consciousness and how to access them, how to integrate them, how that has an impact on our environment, all of those things. Um, but certainly I my forget music. My whole life's been about transcendental meditation and um and the yoga system and human potential. Um and that in, the impact of that on creativity, the potential impact of that on creativity, um, as opposed to this whole other journey that my father appeared to take that did have a huge impact on his family. Um drug addiction but despite all of that we all loved him love him and we all are in awe of his creativity and that's the other thing you know you can't unpack somebody else's dharma in that sense you can't unpack somebody else's tra trajectory in life and how that works you know somebody might be a junkie but still create some of the most incredible art that's ever been created that touches the most people on the planet, you know, et cetera. So all of that's really complex. And so I think we learn, you know, especially with a little bit of therapy, we learn to kind of accommodate things and stop being so damn judgmental. So well said and such an interesting, I think there is a whole nother conversation to be had here. You're right. Yet you, you put it all together and when your dad passes you curate an incredible tribute to your dad uh i think it was october of 2016 with a lineup you know bruce springsteen sting peter gabriel parliament 
Mick Taylor from this, who spent some time with the Stones after Brian Jones died, still around, I think. Uh, that must have been really complicated for you, Malcolm, not just musically, but emotionally as his son. Yeah, well, I did that concert with, um, I sort of co-curated it with Pete Brown, the, the lyricist from Cream. So we kind of took that on together and we saw who we could get to come on, on board. Um, I think th those things can be cathartic in a sense. I mean, it was two two years after my dad passed away. So it was kind of the sort of thing, um, you know, we all have our stories and our families and when, then we have our, our losses of the of our loved ones. And so on one level, I'm the son of an iconic rock star and that means more than, you know, the guy that works down at the supermarket. No, it doesn't at all. Like we, when we lose our parents, we lose our parents. You know, I still, my mom's still here and she's going to live forever, by the way. So, so that's good. But, um, but, uh, you know, when you lose a parent, it's a, it's all sort of a rite of passage, isn't it? And I think, um, so two years after he passed, it was, it felt like a good moment and we had the support of, you know, Pete Brown, um, who was his collaborator for many, many records and many, many hundreds of songs. And um, and so, yeah, we just kind of got a bunch of people together that loved my dad and had worked with him over the years. And we put on a lovely concert. And I do think that that was really cathartic in that sense. Um, and we had Lulu, who's absolutely adorable. Um, and she'd worked with my dad on a on a film score funnily enough uh, about a, a movie set in scotland i believe it's called the slab boys like a little independent uh scottish movie but of course she knew my dad and used to fan apparently she really fancied eric clapton in the in the mid 60s and was kind of on the make for him but that never panned out and uh, you know she was a child star in the U in the uk like a teenage star and had her own tv show and then famously uh when uh when Jimi hendrix was over here and playing on her show he stopped one in the middle of one of his songs this is on british television and said ah oh, well enough of that we're gonna play this and he started playing the riff to cream's sunshine of your love live on tv on the lulu show so um so i mean there's just a wealth of all that history and that's the thing it is a tradition i don't know how long this tradition is going to go on for uh we don't talk about uh cp bark so much these days you know but um so i don't know I, I don't think any of us know where humanity is even heading in the sense of artificial intelligence and transhumanism and post-humanism but at the moment we still kind of are at the tail end of this tradition um that started in the 50s late 50s early 60s um and yes going back to what you mentioned um the impact of british white british teenagers uh, being influenced by the black American music of the time and then kind of bastardizing it in a sense and then re-importing it back to America. Um, it's just an incredible kind of dialogue between cultures in a sense. Um, it's beautiful. I, I'm sure there are writers that have gone into it. I mean, I'm, I'm friends with Harry Shapiro, who's written a lot about these things, but there are plenty of other writers that I'm sure discuss and explore how that happened um you know uh u.s import as i said before u.s import imported records through the armed forces and the influence of the armed forces in different parts of the uk and 
and maybe we could go back to the second world war even i don't know uh, dance bands and and then go back even further to i don't know you know um where do you where does it where does history begin and end you know that's the thing um i mean we had there's a tapestry here um i think his name's john white so when catherine of aragon came over with her entourage to marry henry the eighth she brought a black trumpet player <laughs> in the middle ages during henry the eighth's reign uh she catherine of aragon i guess she was uh, from gaul or france or wherever it, or maybe uh spain area so there was this kind of islamic influence so i suppose there was a black cultural influence on that region of europe at the time of course still is um and so in london they somebody made a tapestry of the kind of uh, band that was playing for henry VIII and catherine and there's a black man playing the trumpet in this and that's the middle ages and then there are documentation where he renegotiated his wages and got more money and so you know i mean we've had people of color in british culture for but pretty much our whole recorded history and then of course your whole thing in america um with the native americans you know uh and the genocides and the you know all unpacking all of that you know and the impact of that on american culture you know um i don't know you'd have to talk to a historian <laughs> we, we have gone um... we have gone very deep here malcolm <laughs> on, on sociology so let's talk about heavenly cream and uh it's a great great story the music is phenomenal talk about what you know the evolution of heavenly cream and you've got some really exciting stuff coming up in 2024. So as we start to wrap, and I think we're going to have to do part two, Malcolm. You're really fun to talk to. Let's uh, let's talk about what's coming up. Yeah. So Heavenly Cream started in, um, I think it was 2017. Uh, Pete Brown, who I mentioned before, the lyricist for Cream and for my dad, a co-writer with my dad for many songs. Um, he was talking to Quarto Valley Records about another project, which is... Um, a documentary about Pete's life and career called uh, White Runes and Imaginary Westerns that features um, all the original members of Cream being interviewed, but also, also Martin Scorsese, who used Cream's music in a lot of the most gr gruesome moments in his movies <laughs> over the years. Um, so, yes, they were talking about this documentary, but then the idea came up of uh, doing um, an acoustic tribute to the band Cream uh, and also shooting a documentary alongside it. So, so really, it, again, it was Pete Brown that spearheaded the project. Then he came to uh, he came to me to ask for my involvement, uh, to Rob Cass, who's the producer, uh, Mark Waters, who ended up shooting the documentary. Um, and then it just went from there. Uh, Rob Cass had a, um, a long-time relationship, working relationship with Bernie Marsden from Whitesnake. Um, so we got Bernie Marsden on very early on, and Bernie... Um, both Pete Brown and Bernie Marsden sadly have passed away earlier this year. Um, but Bernie had a, 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 a good friendship with Joe Bonamassa. Um, they both uh, love the Les Paul guitar and seem to have a few hundred of them each. Uh, and uh, so, you know, they kind of have had a, a good friendship. So it was easy for us to reach out to Joe Bonamassa. And then, you know, we were just starting to reach out to everybody that we thought might want to contribute to this record. Um and we got a really lovely bunch of people together. Deborah Bonham, 
Maggie Bell from Stone the Crows, incredible, iconic uh, Glaswegian singer. Um, Bobby Rush came on board. Uh, Paul Rogers. Um, uh, Nathan James, who's a wonderful British singer. Um, we we emailed Ginger Baker himself, uh, and he agreed to come in, uh, which was amazing. And so he came in with his good friend, Abbas Dodu, who's an, a wonderful um, Ghanaian percussionist who's a really good friend of mine, just a wonderful musician and human being. Um, uh, Neil Murray, awesome from Whitesnake. Uh, Pee Wee Ellis from James Brown's band, who was living in the UK. It's another person that sadly passed away. Um, but he uh, was had been working with Ginger for many years as well in Ginger's band. So, you know, it was just, these things tend to be quite organic. You know, you don't, you're not kind of emailing you know, somebody that you don't really know, you tend to kind of get to people through somebody, you know, or you actually know them. Um, so yeah, kind of, it just came together. And then we did some early sessions in a studio called Sensible Music, but then the bulk of it was recorded at Abbey Road in 2018, including the shooting of the documentary. And then by the end of 2019, when we were ready to release, we hit the pandemic. And I think the, the record label decided to kind of hold back um, on releasing it for whatever reason. And so it's just coming out now, five years later after we did it. So there you go. <laughs> it's kind of short summation of what it was. What a great uh, short and long story. And uh, yeah. <laughs> will, will, will you tour off the record? I'd like to. I mean, I've got I'm getting messages like a Japanese promoter friend of mine messaged me um a couple of days ago and said oh i i bought because it's it i think he got it in tower records so he got the cd uh in tokyo and he's you know oh, i love this and uh have you thought about coming over to japan to tour or whatever i mean i guess it's down to the label you know unfortunately so the, because some of the core members of the the up here on the record have passed away um it it would have to be something slightly different um but it would be very easy for me to put a, you know if they wanted to do it for, for us to put a band together and um do a wonderful show around this music because it's not about the individuals really it's a as we were talking about before it's a tradition music is a tradition you know uh beethoven isn't alive anymore but we still play his music and um and it's pretty damn good um, so, uh, you know, I think, yes, bring it on. I, I would be, I'd love to do it. You know, well, I'd, lo <laughs> I'd, lo I'd love to see it. And Malcolm, I can't tell you how much fun this was when John suggested it. I immediately jumped and said, absolutely. But obviously you and I have not met before today and you are an absolute joy to talk to and a real student, not just of music, but of, you know, sort of humanity. And when we're at our best, that's what we're talking about. Of course, you know, but I mean, I, I just, I don't, I, it, I just blurt stuff out. I'm not claiming to be anything. I, I'm just learning as I go along. And, um, you know, I've got my own music coming out. Uh, I'm working on a new record at the moment. So, you know, I'm, tr I'm trying to kind of have my own, I, I'm trying to forge my head with my own identity in the musical context. Uh, and, you know, that's the thing. I mean, we could spend weeks discussing, uh, like the challenges of that when you when you're born into a situation where your your parent is a famous musician and then all the kind of expectation to do this be the same as that person you know 
I'm sure Julian Lennon and Sean Lennon and Danny Harrison and all of those, you know, all the people. I mean, that's the next level up. You know, if you're the son of a Beatle, I can't even imagine. Uh, uh, that's a whole other challenge, you know. Um, but those are the challenges. And so, you know, the next phase of my life hopefully will be. Uh, I'm not just Jack Bruce's son. I'm also Jack Bruce's son and <laughs> and myself. Yeah, yeah no, incredibly <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, complicated. It's interesting. But you, you've got a great attitude, and that's where it all starts. And I think your embrace of meditation is probably a big part of that. Uh, but you are a joy to talk to, and I wish you every success, Malcolm. This is really super fun to have you on Great Minds. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Matt. Ever since I was ten, born under a bad sign. I've been down since I began to crawl. If it weren't for bad luck, oh, I wouldn't have no luck at all. Now listen.